0: at LoveIsrael.org. That's one word, LoveIsrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson.
1: We are going to begin this evening a very significant study. And I'm speaking about beginning the book of Romans. For a believer, and I wanna emphasize that, for a believer, there is not a more significant book than the book of Romans, because the Apostle Paul, he lays out so many biblical truths, theological doctrine, that you and I must understand. If we're going to walk in this world, that means if we're going to have a testimony before God that he is well-pleased with. So take out your Bible and look with me to that book, Paul's Epistle to the Romans, and chapter 1. Now, the first thing that we need to realize, and as we get more into this book, the early chapters, we will see that Paul makes his points using much from a Jewish culture. There were many Jewish individuals living in Rome. In fact, one of the things that's unique about the Jewish community in Rome was that they had their own style of prayer that was unique to Rome, and this goes back before the time of Paul. It was a historical community of Jewish individuals, and now Paul was anxious, as we'll see in a few minutes, to get to this congregation because of their faith, a faith that was being proclaimed throughout the world, and realizing that many of these new believers we're not just from the nations, from the Gentiles, but there was a significant group of Jewish believers in this congregation. And when we look at the terms that Paul uses, his emphasis upon the law, the commandments of God, what is frequently called the Torah, we see that Paul's emphasis on the Old Testament Scripture in a very profound manner shows, declares to us, that indeed he was writing primarily to those Jewish individuals within this congregation that they would understand the truth that God had revealed to him in order that this truth would be shared throughout the congregation, throughout Rome, and throughout the world. And we are living in the time that this is being fulfilled, where this revelation by Paul having received it by means of the Holy Spirit, his revelation to Paul, that this truth has gone throughout the world. So let's begin chapter one, verse one, of Paul's epistle to the Romans. He writes, Paul, and this next word, doulos, is a word of, of being a slave. Now, many modern translations use the word servant But it's stronger than that. It's just not being a servant or a worker, but literally Paul sees himself as a slave. Why? Why the use of this word? Because Paul understands the implications of redemption. Redemption is an accounting term. It involves a transfer. And for that transfer to take place, there must be a payment. So Paul understands that he has been redeemed, redeemed with a payment. What's that payment? The precious blood of Messiah. So he has been redeemed and he has a new status. And one hand, he understands that he is a son of God, meaning that he has an inheritance. Every believer does. That's good news. But Paul also understands that entering into this covenant this new covenant of forgiveness paul has made a decision to serve god that god would be his lord his master and that he would be a slave a slave as he says here paul a slave of messiah yeshua and then he says called an apostle now this speaks to the fact that paul Is emphasizing as he frequently does in many of his epistles that he has a call upon his life and a unique call a call to be an apostle now that means that he is sent by Messiah for Messiah's purposes he's no longer doing his wants his desire making decisions for himself he has subjected himself It's a term of submissiveness, a term of obedience, and we'll see obedience will manifest itself in a moment in order that he does the will of God. That's what's important, that you and I do the will of God. So Paul, a slave of Messiah Yeshua, called an apostle, and then he says, set apart. Now, this word for being set apart, Notice that it's in the passive meaning, it was done to him. Paul didn't volunteer to be an apostle, but but God made him one, and he was set apart, that is an idea of sanctification. Now, we've already encountered a very important term, this theological term, sanctification. And sanctification is always rooted in the purpose of God, So Paul is acknowledging, I have been called an apostle. He has that calling of the apostleship upon him, whereby his life is now set apart for God's purposes, and that purpose foundation is for the gospel of God. Notice that it's the good news, the gospel of God. Now, if you do a good study of this word gospel, you'll find that it just doesn't appear in the new covenant, but it also appears in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible with the word besorah. And it is related to good news, but specifically, not just any type of good news, but good news concerning redemption. And redemption, it involves a payment And because of that payment, there's an outcome. The outcome of Messiah's payment, what he redeemed us with, his very blood laying down his life, we have a wonderful outcome. And and this redemption will produce a kingdom experience. So everyone, and I want to emphasize that, everyone who has been redeemed, they can be assured of a kingdom experience. That's how we can have assurance concerning our salvation, that it's not uh, uncertain, but it is, and I wanna emphasize this concept, it is eternal. That's why he says he's given us eternal life, life everlasting, because Messiah has given that to us. It cannot be taken away. It is an eternal covenant. When we speak about the new covenant, we can understand it as a kingdom covenant. So Paul says here that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And I believe I've shared many times concerning this word gospel in Hebrew, besorah. It is generated, derived from the word in Hebrew, which means flesh. Now, why would that be? Why would the word for good news concerning redemption involve flesh? Well, the answer is simply. The good news is that God has come, visited his people in the flesh. What are we speaking about? The incarnation. So understand it's never that man could become God, that's heresy. But God became man, this is what the incarnation speaks of. And the incarnation is inherently related to The divinity of Messiah. So he has been set apart for the gospel of God. And now look at verse 2. We see here something that's also so significant where he says, the one which has been proclaimed or promised from beforehand. So the gospel is not new with the New Testament. Many people believe that it's not until John the Baptist comes upon the scene that he reveals and starts using this new word, the gospel. If you look here in verse 2, we're speaking about that which has been proclaimed previously. It's the prefix pro in Greek, which means beforehand. And it was proclaimed beforehand by his prophets in the holy writings in the Holy Scripture. Now, this is why it's so important that we, so we have a right understanding of the gospel, and we understand the context for the gospel, and the expectations from God for those whom he has redeemed. We need to understand it prophetically, what the prophets have revealed concerning the gospel, and that's why it's so discouraging. And this is why, for the most part, that Christianity has so many problems to it. It's not because there's problem with the New Testament, not because there's problem with the Old Testament. The scripture, just like he says, are holy writings. The problem is that we have ripped it out of the context, and we don't understand the prophetic context for the gospel of Messiah. The gospel of the, the living Christ. And therefore, we are deceived. And we have theological problem problems. We embrace doctrines that are not the doctrines of the scripture. Move to verse 3. Now, in speaking about this gospel, he says, concerning his son, the one who has come from the seed of David. Now, this has huge implications, from the seed of David. Now, we need to remember something. Two things that are going to be emphasized in that phrase, from the seed of David. Now, many people, when they look at the genealogy for Christ in the book of Luke, they say, well, this is from Mary's family. There's no biblical basis for that. Could that be true? Possibly think it's very remotely likely that it is from Mary because we usually don't have genealogies from the women. But the point is, nowhere, nowhere in the Scripture is that ever taught, that this is Mary's genealogy from her side for Yeshua. Secondly, we need to realize something. There is a very important prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22. And this prophecy concerns an evil king of Judah, and his name is Yechin, In Hebrew, that's how we say it. And there was a prophecy concerning him, and that is none of his descendants would ever sit upon the throne. Now, this is huge. This is highly important because that destroys the messianic promise. If we have none of his descendants that can ever sit upon the throne again, and it hasn't happened, what about Messiah being from the lineage of David? Well, here's something so important. We know that the scripture teaches both from the Old Testament, for example, from the book of of Isaiah chapter 7, and also from the Gospels, that Messiah, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the one who conceived him was Mary, or in Hebrew, Miriam. So she conceived him without human seed. It was supernatural. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this means something. See, this is why it's so important to understand aspects of Jewish law. Because today, we have tests through DNA, that can reveal the biological father. So there can be this couple and she may have a child and her husband might say, I'm not the father. Or the one who is a father, he can petition the court. They can do a DNA test and it can be determined who is the legal father. But Judaism is very different than this because Judaism emphasizes a covenant. Now, let me just pause and say this you cannot overemphasize the significance of a covenant, especially a covenantal relationship with the living God. But when there's a marriage, and by the way, I hope you know this that in the scripture, marriage is a covenant, and one of the aspects of that covenant is this all the children that the woman bears when she is in a covenantal marriage with another man her husband whatever child comes from her womb that child is legally that man's it does not matter who literally biologically is the father it is not relevant it is not checked it is not a matter of consideration every child that that woman bears to her husband That child, because of the power of the covenant, belongs to him legally. Now, this is important. Why? Well, Miriam and the scripture emphasizes this. Miriam and Joseph, that is Joseph and Mary, they had been betrothed. What does that mean? It means that they were legally married. And in order for that marriage to be separated, and the New Testament speaks about this in the book of Matthew, Joseph would have had to given her a get, that is a certificate of divorce to send her away. Because once one is betrothed, the marriage is in force. The marriage is legal, it is valid, it's in force. And the second part of, of the wedding service is under the chuppah where the blessings, and I won't go into much more than that, but blessings are made And the husband now takes his wife, and they come together. This is why the scripture says that Joseph and Miriam, they were betrothed, but before they came together, they were legally husband and wife, but they had not consummated the marriage. She was still a virgin, but had conceived by the Holy Spirit. So legally, Yeshua is of the seed of david legally now this is going to say here let's be very accurate look again we're in the the end of verse three where it says coming from the seed of david according to the flesh now according to the flesh means in a human way meaning in a natural way and i want to point out and give a illustration let me ask you a question If you are not Jewish, if you are a Gentile, but a believer, let me ask you a question. Are you the seed of Abraham? Yes, you are, by faith. And we're going to see, for example, when we get later on into this this book of Romans in chapter 9, we're going to revisit this and see other proofs. But legally, we see, not biologically, but legally, Yeshua was an heir, he was of the lineage of the house of David. Just like every Gentile believer is part of the seed of Abraham even though they are not of Jewish descent like Abraham was. Not part of it biologically, but through the power of that new covenant. So we see here, and this simply, the fact that Messiah was born of a virgin fulfills the only way that Jeremiah's prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 22 could be fulfilled, but yet, the promise of the Messiah coming was not destroyed, the only way through a virgin birth. So we see here, concerning his son, the one coming from the seed of David according to the flesh. And then we see in verse four, word says, who has been demonstrated the Son of God that's why it's so important. It's speaking now of his divinity so that we understand who this Yeshua is, this Messiah. And the word here is, having been demonstrated, it's the word for seeing something. Now, there's two words for seeing. There's the Greek word orao and orizo. They come from the same root but two different type of verbal endings. And what this means is to show forth something or it's to cut out something according to a pattern, according to a previous objective, a previous set of standards that now must be fulfilled. And this is what the scripture is saying. And this is why this unique word is used here. Who has been demonstrated the son of God in power. And not only in power, but it says, according to the Holy Spirit. And here's the evidence. I mentioned this word to to demonstrate in power. Well, what type of demonstration are we speaking about? We have it right here. The fact that from the resurrection of the dead. That's why the resurrection is so vital, so significant. That Messiah, he rose from the dead. That demonstrates that he is the Son of God, the firstborn of the dead. And then we see in the middle of verse 4, it speaks about Yeshua, the Messiah, our Lord. And this is why we need to understand who we are as the redeemed of the Lord. We have been redeemed by grace through the blood of Messiah, through the love of God that we've experienced, forgiveness. And this has put us in a new relationship, an eternal relationship with God, whereby now he is the Lord. And we are called, not our salvation depends upon it, but we are called if we want to demonstrate our salvation, we want to have a pleasing walk, we want to do God's will, we're called to demonstrate him as Lord of our life. Verse 5, through whom this Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, whom through we have received grace, and notice something else, and an apostleship, that means we're sent as well. We're sent forth, and it all has to do with this demonstration of him being the Lord of our life, and also an apostleship for obedience, the obedience of faith among all the nations. Now, Paul is speaking here about himself and those who are with him, who were apostles, that they were called to submit, to obey this apostleship for all the nations, because Israel was called to be a blessing to all the nations. But every believer has a call upon their life not necessarily to be an apostle in the same sense of Paul or a missionary being set forth, but we are his representative. And as his representative, as one sent forth into this world for whatever purpose he has for your life, and he has a purpose for your life, we're supposed to demonstrate obedience, a faithful obedience. That's what he's speaking about here. In behalf of, and look at how verse 5 ends, in behalf of his name. Now, why is that so important? Because the Jewish context speaks about God as Hashem, the name. And so this this emphasis of the term name in this context, referring to Yeshua, also speaks of his divinity. So we read in this passage, in behalf of his name, look at verse 6, in whom also you and this means every believer are called ones we have a calling upon our life called by messiah yeshua verse 7. now he's going to address who he's writing he's going to do so formally where he says to all the ones being in rome the beloved of god the ones who are called saints and this term saints It comes from the the Greek word referring to holy ones and remember, just like the term sanctification means that you're called for a a heavenly purpose, a godly purpose according to his will, the term saints refers to that same thing, holiness. And holiness is not so much as a state of being, now I'm holy, but holiness involves a will a purpose, an objective, a designation. And that's what we see in this passage, that God has saved us and designated us to serve him, to manifest his glory in the world. So he says to this group of of saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Messiah Yeshua. Now, throughout this, he emphasizes the lordship of Messiah. And you and I need to do this as well, not just in speech, but also, I want to emphasize that, but also in deed. So our Lord Messiah Yeshua, verse 8. First, he says, I want to give thanks to my God through Messiah Yeshua in behalf of all of you. Now, he's especially thankful for this congregation because they have a reputation, reputation, a reputation, excuse me. They have a reputation. A reputation, notice what it says, because your faith is proclaimed, literally is being proclaimed in all the world. That's what we should want. We should want to be people that our faith, our local congregation that we're part of, has a testimony, not just in the neighborhood, not just in our city, but going beyond that, having an impact and influence throughout the world. And this is what this congregation in Rome had, a reputation that they had a faith that made a difference. Look now to, to verse nine. For my witness is God, whom I serve in my spirit among the gospel of his son as and then he talks about as doing so without ceasing without any type of hesitation without any type of break does he when he makes these prayers he says make mention of your memory and then he speaks about how always that he is is praying my prayer and my beseeching if and he uses a term in in greek it's the word for already. Now, this is another emphasis on the Hebrew language that Paul's writing in Greek, but it's being understood from a Hebrew standpoint because we say ba, which means I've already came. Well, you say that when you're attending to come very soon. We wouldn't say that in English, but Paul uses the same expression in Greek. And he says here, I've been praying, making supplication, If somehow already that I will travel by the will of God to come unto you. And that's what Paul wants to do. He has a great desire to visit this congregation because he wants to be part of a congregation where the spirit of God is moving, where people understand the lordship of Messiah, where people are walking in the spirit. And this is what we're going to strive to become as we study